If you turn your attention to 2 John, beginning in verse 9, let's set the stage for exactly what's being said and that under which we have questions. Whosoever goeth on when it abideth not in the teaching of Christ hath not God, but he that abideth in the teaching hath both the Father and the Son. If anyone cometh to you and bringeth not this teaching, receive him not into your house, and give him no reason. For he that giveth him digging partaketh in his evil work. I don't know any more difficult thing that there is for me personally to make up my mind about than to make up my mind that a man is a false teacher to the point of Second John 9, 10, and 11. But there are times, evidently, when you and I are instructed to make up our minds that we cannot offer the ordinary fellowship and hospitality of our home to someone because he is a false teacher and because our uh, association with him would be an encouragement to him. I think there are a lot of great thoughts that could be brought out of this in the fact that the support of gospel preachers is fellowshipping them. The hospitality of your home is a form of fellowship with them. The bidding them Godspeed is a form of fellowship with them. And therefore, when they no longer teach the truth, we must withdraw this kind of encouragement, association, and fellowship with them, lest we be participating in or partaking in some small way the era that they themselves are, are teaching. Well, a fair and a proper treatment about this is absolutely essential, I think, for our brethren. And if by some, as they have narrowed it down, that this means as long as a man teaches Jesus Christ as the Son of God, he is to be fellowshiped by me, encouraged by me, and to receive the hospitality of my home, then I have a misunderstanding about this passage. But this is the way that many of our brethren are wanting to follow. But if it means the doctrine of Christ here does not mean simply the idea that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, but all that Jesus Christ did and brought for us in the body of truth that's known as the gospel, then the six ideas of fellowship will have to be maintained. I don't think anybody fusses about whether or not we ought to feed them or bed them or help them or pay them. But the problem is, what does the word or the phrase doctrine of Christ mean? That's where the whole thing hinges. If it means that a man is a true teacher that can uh, receive my fellowship and help and encouragement just as long as he believes Jesus Christ is the Son of God, then that leaves it open very, very wide. If it means that the man must teach within the realm of uh, those body, uh, those things or that body of truth that our Lord delivered, then that narrows it down to faithful brethren who will teach and preach the truth. Well, there's some erroneous doctrines about it. Perhaps I'd better make you some quotes here. If you will notice, a number of years ago, probably the most outspoken man in error about this was Paul Ketchiside, particularly in the 60s. And he would say things like this, God's unity is a unity of diversity. Every sincere believer in Jesus as the Son of God, as a child of God, and a, quote, brother in prospect, end of quote. Such believers are children of God regardless of whether or not they are immersed. We should fellowship those who use instruments of music the same as we fellowship those differing about the use of meat and herbs. Now, quotations like this uh, seem to be very disruptive to a good number of our brethren back during the sixties. I don't know how widespread the effects of this still are, but they were very, very disruptive. 
Then another man <coughs> added his voice to it in a, mind, uh, in, a, in a lesser way, a minor way. He endorsed the fellowship of anyone who was immersed, regardless of the purpose of that emotion. Well, I think that would be a little bit easier to answer than some of the other things. I don't believe you would have the problems with that. And then yet another advocate in recent years who has not left our fellowship, as has the former student from whom I quoted, simply said a believer is one who teaches that Jesus Christ is the Son of God regardless of his denominational affiliation or lack of it. Now this was in a little book that this brother wrote evidently to encourage evangelism. I believe that's the reason why the book was written. I believe that's his stated reason. But I thought it was a uh, twisted uh, way of trying to encourage evangelism because it uh, entailed also the offering of fellowship in some senses to anyone, regardless of denominational affiliation, who simply believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, several areas that stem from this. I would suggest, first of all, we have men who believe it's their uh, opportunity to be members of ministerial alliances. I have always resisted this. I have never seen any justification for it. I have been involved in several different places where in order to get radio time or television time, it's passed around on a community basis that you have to have some kind of affiliation with something. But I believe that in my own personal circumstances, it had been better and was better for me not to receive that kind of a time if it meant that I had to associate and affiliate myself with them as if I were just another one of the denominational preachers. I'm not in the same business they are. They're in the devil's business. I'm in the Lord's business. And it's difficult sometimes to make that, that statement so hard and clear, and it hurts to even say it that way. But I'm not in competition with any nominational church. They're doing the devil's work. I'm doing the Lord's work to the best of my ability. They are servants of the devil. They preach the devil's doctrines. They're going to send people to a devil's hell. And if I don't, under, if I don't believe that, then why am I even preaching what I'm preaching? If they teach the truth about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, if they would teach somebody how to become a child of God and be united to the Lord and teach them how to go to heaven, then I might talk with them about being in the same business. They're fooling the people. And in this maze of soft-hearted, spineless, jealous, backbone preachers that some of us have in our days today, we have the idea that we've got to be the best friend to all these men and be members of their ministerial alliances, and we've got to show openly a great love and fellowship for these men, and I believe that they are men of the devil. They may be deluded, they may be honest, they may be good morally, they may be many, many other things, but they are teaching people false doctrines that will keep them from heaven. And it hurts me to even say that, but it's the truth. And we have got to make a distinction. Secondly, I think that preachers are being encouraged to be involved in community worship periods, such as Thanksgiving services, sometimes even Easter services, if I might use that King James expression. Sometimes Christmas services, if I might use that Catholic version <laughs> expression. Uh, 
I say the same thing about this that I say about being a member of the ministry of I cannot understand why a preacher would want to be. I cannot understand why he would want to line himself up except to court the favor of people. I've held meetings across this country and have been in meetings with men who argue with me about this and differ with me about this, and I have yet to see any reason that they want to be so except to court the favor of people. They put it under the guise of influence in the community. They put it under the guise of the respect. And after all, if you slap them in the face and drive them away, you're never going to have a chance to teach them. Well, I realize all of these subterfuges. I realize all of these hedgerows you build up if you want to cloud the issues. The point is, I'm not in the same business they are, and I can't let the community think so. Now, I need to be kind and loving, and I need to be respectful, and I need to be generous, but I also need to be separate. Thirdly, we have men that just simply aspire open fellowship of denomination. <laughs> Though I'm not uh, a prophet of doom, I hope, I'm sort of like this, like I am about this many music. I'd hate for us to take a poll on our Sunday morning uh, audience as to how many would show whether or not we brought an instrument music into our worship. I'm afraid I'd be embarrassed about that in some churches. That's I already have that question where I've worked. And I'm wondering if we just took a poll of men, an anonymous poll of men across the brotherhood today, elders, deacons, Bible class teachers, teachers, church workers, committed soul winners, as to whether or not they would espouse open fellowship with denominations, I'm afraid I'd be afraid of the results of such an anonymous poll. If men would speak their true hearts. Fourth, I'm disturbed about some recreational activities of some of our Christians. First place, I do not believe the church has any business sponsoring recreation, and they are certainly involved in church leagues and so forth, but then I realize there are others where the men and women get together and form different kinds of uh, recreational leagues of uh, maybe slow pitch softball or bowling or something like this, and it's not sponsored by the church, and it's not paid for by the church, and the elders don't plan it, and I realize there's a distinction. And I want to respect the idea of a lot of good time and a lot of good fun and a lot of good recreation. But I think that in some instances, if we do not look at we're going to involve ourselves with a small, accepted type of fellowship of the denominational world, where we would be simply looked on as another in the church league. That's a rather small thing, but I'm afraid that it could be just one more little brick in the wall of the prison that we're building around ourselves if we don't look out. But I think the most dangerous of all is the fifth one, and that is the fear of my fellow preachers to preach against denominationalism. I ask you, fellow preacher, how long has it been since you preached about the sin of denominationalism? How long has it been since you preached about false doctrines that are around our people every day at work? Now, we talk about, oh, but we want to preach the whole man. Well, what's more whole than... Well, they spend eight hours a day, five days a week working, and they're in contact with all of these denominational doctrines. What is more uh, permeating them than that? I, I can't think of anything about which they need to know more than the doctrine that our Lord Jesus Christ brought to us because they are saturated with it all day long if they're talking about religious things at all. That's what their uh, fellow workers are teaching and believing and espousing and stumbling across. 
And if there's anything that our brethren need to know, it, it, it is the era of denominational doctrine. How long has it been since you had the courage to speak up and take a firm, clear-cut stand, even in your own pulpit, about the errors of denominational doctrine and the errors of those churches? I don't mean to become a flashing, unkind, militant kind of a man that uh, is arrogant in preaching against these things. I'm not encouraging any of us to do that. But I'm encouraging us to fight the devil where we find him enough every day. It bothers me that some of my good preaching friends just don't do much preaching along that line. I believe that the kindest word I might say about them is they're kind. I believe that's one of the kinder words that I might be able to say about them. Well, let's look at the context of Second John, and I believe that we have some some things that we need to understand in order to get this doctrine of Christ. First of all, this word truth. Verse 1, those that know the truth. Verse 2, for the truth's sake. Verse 4, children walking in the truth. Now, this word truth seems to indicate more than just the belief in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. But it seems to be a body of truth that is larger than that and more extensive than that seemingly involving the idea of all of those things that Jesus taught about the way and the manner of life, the way we should walk and the manner of life we should live. I do not know anybody, really, who would deny that this word truth is a broad term here. But then, look at verse 4, the word commandment. Even as we receive commandment from the Father. Well, what? enabled us to walk in the truth, the commandment that we receive from the Father. And in verse 6, we should walk after his commandment. And this is the commandment. Seemingly, the word truth and commandment refer to the same body of message from the Lord. And the general, overall message from God, not just about whomsoever his son may be, but also about how we should live in our everyday life. So I think that the word truth and the word commandment here is used rather broadly. But then next you uh, notice the use of the word doctrine. In verse 9, it goes right on after talking about truth and commandment as applying to the whole life. Then who abides not in the teaching or the doctrine of verse 9? The same hath both the Father and the Son. Or the teaching of Christ, rather, has not God in verse 9. Verse 9, if he abides in the teaching, then he has both the Father and the Son. In verse 10, if anyone doesn't bring this doctrine or this teaching to you, then do not receive him. I would be willing to affirm that truth and commandment and doctrine or teaching are all speaking about the same thing. And then notice the use of the word goeth onward. The Greek word simply means to lead out or progress or advance and using the bad sense in which John uses it. It means anybody who goes too far and does not remain in the teaching. Or it means to go further than is right and proper to transgress the limits of true doctrine. So, fits well into the context which I suggest to you. Now look at the parallel grammatical construction. I think this is an important thing. When we use parallel grammatical construction, for instance, like Acts 2.42, the Apostles' Doctrine, 
Matthew 16, 12, the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Revelation 2.14, the doctrine of Balaam. Revelation 2.15, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, or the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And then Matthew, or rather Acts 13.12, the doctrine of the Lord. Now, in each case, the grammar seems to be identical. We have a problem whether or not to take it objectively or subjectively. And so, in doing this, I suggest to you a little chart. I believe it's in your book. It simply points out what it would be on the one case and what it would be on the other case. Now, if we go down to Matthew 16, 12, the doctrine of the scribes and Pharisees, or of the Pharisees and Sadducees, if that means the doctrines that they taught, or does it mean the doctrines about them? Are the doctrines that are being taught doctrines that tell us about the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Or are they the doctrines which the Pharisees and Sadducees themselves teach? Well, obviously, it means that which they teach. Not the teaching about them. What about the Nicolaitans? Same way, Revelation 2, 15. What about Balaam? <laughs> Is it the doctrine that Balaam taught or the teaching about Balaam? Well, is it the teaching that the apostles did, or is it the teaching about the apostles? The object of the teaching, that which someone is to learn, is not who the apostles were, but rather what the apostles were teaching. And so when you come up to Second John 9, it's the teaching which Christ did, or it's the teaching about Christ. I suggest to you it's the teaching which Christ did. It's the entire body of truth that composes the doctrine of Christ. Now, there are numerous Greek authorities to which I refer you, and they are footnoted, aren't in Gingrich, and Alford, and A.P. Robertson, and Vincent, which seem to give these exact same things in one or two commentaries. The mass of evidence cannot be said to be all on this side, not at all. Rather, it is more evenly divided than leaves me without uh, complete uh, complacency of mind about this, but nonetheless, there are enough of the mass of Greek scholarship who seem to indicate that this is a proper connotation of this particular thing. But now, what does this mean to our doctrine of fellowship? Well, if the doctrine of Christ means the body of revealed truth, then fellowship must be maintained that all who teach and practice that body of truth. And fellowship must not be offered. It must not be maintained that anyone who will not teach within that body of truth. Then one would be accurate in saying that Christians cannot fellowship those who live Lives of growth, continued practice of errors, and morals and manners. It would also be exclusive of those who continue in the teaching of errors that cause men to lose their souls. Now, unfortunately, there are those who want to listen more to Thomas Campbell than to the Bible. And then every time you get involved in one of these discussions, they go and quote Thomas Campbell. I respect the Campbells. I respect their scholarship, their leadership. I respect the the, the work that they did in, in helping to point men to the truth. But when it comes down to the point that one of these men may call for those things which are contrary to God's Word, we just simply understand that every man has these particular problems within his own life and teaching, and this may be, have, may be one of Campbell's. Campbell's statement is this, Although inferences and deductions from Scripture premises, when fairly inferred, may truly be called the doctrine of God's Holy Word, Yet they're not formally binding upon the conscience of Christians further than that they perceive the connection and evidently that they are so. Therefore, no such deduction can be made in terms of communion, but do belong to the after and progressive edification of the church. Now, if you ever get any discussion with any of these men who want this kind of fellowship, you've got to deal with that particular argument. 
To me, it's just simply, of course, if he's accurate, then fellowship ought to be maintained with all believers who immerse for mission sins and let all the other deductions come later. Remember that Campbell lived at a different time and under different circumstances when men were, were uh, walking toward the truth and coming out of error, and there were completely different circumstances before a crystallization of some things that are more easily seen today. Great advances were made, great contributions. But in today's society, I do not believe it is an accurate statement. You see, this would mean that anybody immersed in Jesus Christ for the remission of sin would be our brother in Christ, and we would take Mormons. We would take one branch of the Church of God. We'd have to take some of the free Methodists. We'd have to take even some independent Pentecostals. And there would be all others that would teach all manner of evil and ungodliness and error, but they did believe Jesus to be the Son of God. They did baptize for the remission of sins in the name of Christ. Well, now, here's an alternate that I suggest. Fellowship should be maintained with all of those whom God has said will inherit eternal salvation and with whom he will have fellowship. I do not believe that we can fellowship anybody whom God will not fellowship. And if that isn't what Second John 9 is teaching, I don't know what it is. You see, they do not have God. Whatever this doctrine of Christ is, whoever has left it does not have God. What does that mean? He doesn't have fellowship with God. He doesn't have the approval of God. He no longer has a unity with God. There is no relationship of being united with God. He is not with him anymore. Why? Because he has left the doctrine. Now, if he does teach this, he has both the Father and the Son. That simply means the fellowship of them. That union of relationship with them, he will continue. Now, whatever this is, is a rather serious matter, isn't it? Would we want to place ourselves in a position of fellowshipping someone whom God will not fellowship? If we do, we're making a sad mistake. If, on the other hand, we fail to fellowship somebody whom God fellowships, we also make a very sad mistake. I would not equate that one would be any worse than the other. Both would be terrible errors. And so this is a very important doctrine, because whomsoever God fellowships, we should fellowship. Whomsoever he refuses fellowship, so should we. Now, I think this position will be consistent with the idea that we withdraw from the ungodly and immoral, 1 Corinthians 5. I believe it's also consistent with withdrawing from false teachers and from factious men, Romans 16, to Mark, those that cause division, occasions of stumbling, contrary to the doctrine which you receive, and turn away from them. I believe that this position will be consistent with that. Then I want to notice one other minute difference that I think will help us a little bit. There's a difference between fellowship and endorsement. I can fellowship many men whose teachings I may not all endorse. <laughs> In fact, there were some yesterday I wouldn't begin to endorse, frankly. And uh, they might not begin to endorse this one either. But we can maintain fellowship. Our fellowship is broader than our endorsement. Where you and I disagree about matters, we may not endorse. But there's a great difference between what you and I can agree and endorse about each other in, their, in our teachings and whether or not we will fellowship each other as brethren in Christ in full, complete, honorable, loving fellowship, joining hands together to do the work of the Lord. I suggest let's keep this distinction crystal clear in our minds. 
that our fellowship ought not to be as narrow as our endorsement. And the reason I say that is because my endorsement is not infallible. I believe with all of my heart that some things that men say would be wrong, but I don't believe it enough to believe they're going to lose their soul over. I appreciated so very much Brother Camp's statement twice yesterday about some things uh, concerning the matters of the Holy Spirit and various other problems where he pled for love and unity and not splintering the Lord's church. Well, certainly, we can live with many things of disagreement where we may not endorse one another in certain points of our teaching, but we should be very careful to maintain fellowship as much as we can. Well, while there's so many factions and fellowships today among restoration groups, I get a little bit leery when I hear brethren from some of our high-powered colleges come around and say, uh, those of us of the restoration heritage. I'm not really sure all the time what those fellows mean. And I'm wondering if, it, if it's a little bit further than what I want to mean. But be that as it may, it isn't an easy question to answer, but first of all, I think there are several things that we should consider about this. There are some men who just simply demand to be contentious and factious. And uh, churches split just simply over contentious men, factious men who demand their own way. Now, I don't know anything that I can do to keep a group from going off like that. They demand such things. I don't know that I could force them not to. Secondly, I believe pride and selfishness can take control in the lives of men. I fear for myself and every other gospel preacher because we all have ego problems. I appreciated so very much Curtis Camp coming up to the Bear Valley School last year and giving lectures to our students. And you know, he talked about the problems of the church and the problems with the world, and he talked about the problems with preachers in three consecutive chapel talks. If you haven't heard Curtis Camp talk to young preachers and old preachers, <laughs> like some of us teachers, you need to hear him. You know what he said our number one sin is? Now, I know he's got to be wrong. But he said that our number one sin is pride and ego. He said it with a smile on his face, and he just cut our hearts out <laughs> while he said it. But I'm afraid he's right. I'm afraid that we preachers have the tendencies to let our egos and our personal drives and ambitions take precedence over our fight for the Lord and his truth sometimes. Oh, it's ever with us. He pointed out that it was with him as a young man. He believes it's still with him as an older man. It's with preachers everywhere we go. We'll never get away from it. And I was, I was astounded at the force, force with which he talked about this, but I was gratified and I was thankful that he would say this to those of us to whom he should have said it. Preachers, that is. Well... This pride and selfishness is a bad problem among us. Thirdly, men may mistake endorsement for fellowship and vice versa. Fourth, men may be led by dynamic and deceptive leaders. Occasionally, we run on to men who actually deceive, who actually will raise money for other purposes than what they say they're going to spend it, and vice versa. And then fifth, there are some lines of fellowship that have been drawn due to the splitting and the dividing of the body of Christ. Now, I say this because... After the body has been split, 
And after men have shown themselves to be factious and contentious, then you and I have but little recourse. We cannot offer them our fellowship either, is what I'm trying to say. In regard to that last-mentioned point, fellowship could be maintained with many of the brethren today if they would just let us. I'm speaking about in regard to clashes and cups and located preachers and benevolent works and cooperation, and etc. I believe that you and I could well maintain fellowship with those who disagree with us about this, but they will not allow it. I wish they would, but they would not. I believe many men stand ready to offer them fellowship. Up until now, most of it has been a rebuffing. I believe there is a change about this in many places. I am grateful and glad to see this taking place. But I do believe <clears throat> that I have no recourse. If they refuse and if they divide the body of Christ over it, then I must look upon that as a faction and as a division. So I would like to conclude like this. Second John 9, 11 offers no place for false teachers. It offers no place to leave open the limits of fellowship beyond that which God wants. Our Lord had no intention that his followers fellowship false teachers of any doctrine, particularly that which would destroy the church and destroy the body of Christians and destroy salvation. The teaching of John was clear. Do not offer hospitality, common hospitality even, of one's own home to those who destroy the teaching of Christ and of his apostles. I like a quote that incidentally was left out of the footnotes. It's from Matthew Henry's commentary. Uh, but I believe it's not even in your book. But I have it here in my notes. It's from Matthew Henry in volume 10, page 161, where he said, Deniers of the faith are destroyers of the soul. The doctrine of Christ, I believe, clearly refers to the body of truth first taught by Jesus and further practiced by his apostles. Thank you.